Well, we have been walking through a series on the book of Daniel, and this came about um, recognizing that uh, as much as ever in the history of the world, as Christians, we live very much as um, exiles in a foreign land. We live in a world where increasingly our morals and our values are not reflected in the broader culture that we live in. And so the question just came up, um, who can be our guide helping us to navigate this challenging life. And um, Daniel came to mind as a prophet who lived during the Babylonian exile and very much spoke to um, his people about how to live as Christians in a foreign land. And so we've been walking through and looking at the story of Daniel, and a lot of these stories are very familiar. Um, but with the, with the angle of, of how can we learn, what can we learn about flourishing in exile? And we've spent several weeks, and I just wanted to kind of look back over where we've been, because I think that these are helpful stories to help us kind of frame our life in Seattle. So in the first chapter, we saw the power of living as people of conviction, right? So Daniel and his friends have just been brought into exile. They're young, and they've been brought into the king's court, and they're being groomed to be um, kind of among the elite and the leaders in the Babylonian um, empire, But Daniel and his friends chose not to what they viewed as defile themselves by eating the royal food. And they chose to only eat foods um, that were approved by God. And we saw in the story that as a result, they were actually healthier, um, more nourished than all of the others that were eating according to Babylonian custom. So we saw Daniel and his friends, they they chose not to isolate themselves, um, to build a wall around themselves. Um, But they also chose not to become completely absorbed into the culture that they had been transplanted into. Instead, they chose to live in the midst of that world, but to hold tight to their convictions. So then in Daniel chapter 2, we saw the power of living as people of prayer. So in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and it deeply troubles him. He can't remember the dream when he wakes up, though, and so he calls on all of the wise men of the empire to come and and tell him what the dream was and then to interpret it. And none of them can do that. They can't tell him what it was that he dreamed. But then Daniel asks for some time so that he can go and pray to his God, and he's able to come back to Nebuchadnezzar, tell him the dream, interpret it, and as a result, he saves not only his own life, the life of his friends, but the lives of all of the wise men, because Nebuchadnezzar had said that he would put them all to death if they could not tell him what this dream meant. And so what we saw in that chapter is the power of prayer, that four of them went into their homes and prayed intently to the Lord that evening, and the Lord answered their prayers, and the result was the saving of many. The power of prayer. Well, in Daniel chapter 3, Um, we have this statue from chapter 2 come to life. Nebuchadnezzar decides, well, I'm going to build the statue, and everyone's going to bow down and worship it. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refuse to do that. They refuse to bow down and worship this statue. And the result is that King Nebuchadnezzar has them thrown into the fiery furnace, right? You probably remember this story from Sunday school. This, maybe you drew pictures of these men walking around in the furnace and this fourth figure being there protecting them. And they come out of the fiery furnace unscathed. 
And so in Daniel chapter 3, we are reminded of true flourishing coming from worshiping God alone, not bowing down to worship any other gods of the age. Well, then last week in Daniel chapter 4, there's yet another dream. And last week's dream was of this um, vibrant tree that grows up and then is chopped down. And Nebuchadnezzar is told that, that he is that tree and that he is being cut down because he has not chosen to bow down and worship to the one true God. And that dream plays out in reality. And Nebuchadnezzar goes off into the wilderness for seven years loses his mind until he is willing to worship the Lord. And that comes about in Nebuchadnezzar's life because he sees the faithfulness of Daniel, his friends, play out over years and years and years. And Mark's encouragement to us was that we too live as a community of plausibility, That as we live as people of prayer, as we live out our Christian convictions in the midst of our world, that we are creating an image for people of an alternative way of life, an attractive way of life. And in Nebuchadnezzar's life, we saw the impact of that faithful presence in proximity to him as he turns to the Lord. And at the end of chapter 4, we see the king of Babylon truly worshiping the God of Israel. So that's kind of where we've been to this point. And today uh, we're going to look at Daniel chapter 5. Well, this week, um, if you are a watcher of the news, you saw that there was a huge storm moving its way through the Midwest. And a lot of us have Midwestern ties. And so maybe you had friends and family that you were keeping in touch with Um, because this storm was spawning tornadoes from Michigan to Texas. Um, There were over, I think, 20 different tornadoes that touched down over the course of just a few days and flattened entire neighborhoods. And why does it seem like they always find the trailer parks? You know, these just pick them up and fling them because they don't have foundations. Well, if you watch the news and you watch the interviews that they do with individuals who've been affected by these storms, there are typically two strikingly different reactions that you see. The one is utter devastation. You know, they interview someone who has just lost everything that they have worked their entire life for, smashed to smithereens, and the person is just absolutely devastated. But then they will interview other people And surprisingly, you witness in them gratitude. Gratitude that at least they are alive. At least the things most important to them, their loved ones, are okay. So two very different reactions to the loss of all of their worldly possessions there. Well, in Daniel 5, we'll see the connection. Um, I'm not going to read it. I'm going to tell the story for us this morning, but you're welcome to follow along in Daniel chapter 5. To catch us up, years have passed. Up until this point, the stories have been about King Nebuchadnezzar. This morning, the the story is about King Belshazzar. So Nebuchadnezzar reigned. He finished his reign. Another king came to power. He finished his reign. And another king came to power, and that was Belshazzar. So we have, um, many decades have passed by since we left off in Daniel chapter 4. And King Belshazzar is having a great banquet. 
in chapter 5. It is opulent. Picture the most over-the-top, extreme, lavish um, banquet. And here's King Belshazzar sitting with all of his um, wives, his concubines, the leaders, um, you know, a thousand folks having this lavish banquet. And they decide during the course of this banquet that they want to bring in the um, golden chalices that they had stolen decades before from the Jewish temple when they, when they ransacked Jerusalem. So they bring in these golden chalices that had been used in worship of God, and they begin drinking um, out of these chalices. But, you know, lots of alcohol involved here, and before long, they're not just drinking out of these chalices, but they're worshiping these chalices. They're worshiping the god of gold that this chalice is made out of. They're worshiping the wood and the god of iron and steel and bronze. And all of a sudden, King Belshazzar is sitting at the table. He, he glances off, and um, they have actually excavated what they think was the room, this throne room where this banquet took place, which is crazy to me that they can identify that. But the room that they uncovered... Um, Three of the walls are um, blue enamel brick walls, um, but then the fourth wall is actually a plaster wall. And so King Belshazzar is sitting there at this banquet, and all of a sudden he looks over, and he sees a human hand. And the way that it's described, it appears to be just a human hand tracing letters in the plaster wall. Well, King Belshazzar freaks out. All right. Up to this point, you know, everything seems to be going well. He's having a great time. And then he sees this vision, this, this hand writing on the walls. And the language in the passage, um, I mean, just picture your most terrified moment, okay? And that is what we have happening here. So it says, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. And he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. So he is terrified. And again, um, immediately he wants to know, what does this mean? Now, the words that were written on the wall were, he could read the words, but he wanted to understand the deeper meaning behind them. And so he calls all of the same group of folks, all of the wise men, and none of them are able to tell him the deeper meaning behind these words. But the queen mother comes in. This is probably um, his father's wife. And she reminds him, all of these years ago, there was this wise man in the nation who had come over from Jerusalem um, who was able to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. You should bring him in and see if he can shed any light on what this means. And so King Belshazzar calls Daniel in, and Daniel looks at the words, and he prays, and he is able to tell the king the meaning of these words. So the words that are written on the wall are meeny, meeny, tekel, parson. You know, this means nothing to me. But as you begin reading, um, I discovered that all of these words were, um, these were names of weights. So it is possible that the king looked up and what he actually saw was through a doorway to where the servants were working in the kitchen. And a servant had actually written these words on the wall um, to do with the meal that was being prepared. We don't know. It could also have been a hand out of nowhere writing, and really it doesn't matter. God works through the everyday ordinary and makes it profound, and God works miracles. But these were 
um, terms of measurement that had been written on the wall. But the king understands that there is a message for him here, and Daniel explains to him what these words mean. So he says, this is what the words mean. Many. God has numbered the days of your reign and has brought it to an end. Tekel. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Now the king has promised that um, whoever is able to interpret this dream, he will dress in purple, meaning he will make them royalty. He will put gold chains around their necks and he will put them in as third in control of the entire nation. This is what he gets from Daniel. But the king follows through and he gives Daniel all of these things. But then it says that that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. The word of the Lord. This is a crazy story. This is a crazy story. What is in it for us? Well, prior to Daniel laying out um, the interpretation of this passage, he takes a moment to draw a comparison between Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzar, who is referred to as as his, um, his father, but probably just a forefather in the kingdom. And if we remember, Nebuchadnezzar, in that vision of the tree being chopped down, he received a warning from God, calling him to worship the one true God. But different than Belshazzar, Nebuchadnezzar responded. Granted, it took him seven years out of his mind in the wilderness, but at the end of Nebuchadnezzar's story, he bows down and he worships God. And God restores his kingdom to him. He's restored to his position, his power, all is well at the end for Nebuchadnezzar. But in Belshazzar's story, Belshazzar never gets to that point. He never gets to the point of repenting, of acknowledging that God, Yahweh, is the one true God. And Belshazzar's story ends dramatically different than Nebuchadnezzar's story. Well, Jesus tells a parable of a person that, that is just like this in Luke chapter 12. Jesus is speaking to a crowd of thousands when out of nowhere, somebody in the crowd shouts out to him, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to split the inheritance with me. If you ever wonder if your teaching is having any effect, right? <laughs> and so Jesus tells the parable of the rich fool. And he says, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, hmm, what should I do? I have no place to store all of my crops. Oh, I know. I'll just tear down all of my small barns and I will build bigger barns to store all of my grain. I'll store it all away and I will be set for life. I'll be able to take it easy. I'll be able to eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him in this parable, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then Jesus goes on to say, this is how it will be with those of you who store up things for themselves but are not rich toward God. So Belshazzar in Daniel chapter 5 is in fact the rich fool. 
living as if there is no God, building bigger and bigger palaces for himself to contain his growing and growing wealth, and all the while drowning himself with alcohol because somewhere in the back of his mind he recognizes that all of this stuff that he is accumulating really doesn't provide for his security at all. So why does God write on the wall? Clearly, Belshazzar has gone too far. It's not a warning for him. He receives the warning, and then the same night, his life is taken from him. So if the warning is not for Belshazzar, who is the warning for? Well, I wanted to say something else there. Belshazzar here has succumbed to the temptation of of wealth, right, of power. And this is the same temptation that the devil presents Jesus with when he goes out in the wilderness, right, during those 40 days of testing at the beginning of his ministry. All this I will give you if you will bow down and worship me. And we know that Jesus passes this test, right? Belshazzar fails the test. Now, to be clear, it's not that wealth is bad. And, you know, Katie's um, words can, can come across as awkward. It might have grated on you that we, we asked her to come and share about that. And as I sit here and I talk about Belshazzar and his life being ended because he did not bow down and worship God, but he was worshiping the gods of gold, it can be very easy for us to get defensive because the reality is that most of us in this room have a fair amount of stuff. We have retirement accounts. We have 401ks. We spend time talking about how we're going to store away the things that we have. It can be awkward to talk about this. And I want you to hear me say that wealth in and of itself is not bad, right? It's a necessity, especially in Seattle. It takes money to live here. It's not what we have that is the ultimate issue. What is the issue is where we place our ultimate value. If we place our ultimate value in the things that we acquire, the things that we possess, that is the problem. For Belshazzar, it was clear where his ultimate value lied. And there was nothing changing that. So why does God write on that wall? So seeing the writing on the wall, this is a, a phrase that gets thrown around, right? And I am, I am horrible with these figures of speech. I use them wrong always, and so I try very hard never to use them. Uh, and so I had to look it up. You know, what does seeing the writing on the wall actually mean? Because I knew that if I tried to just wing it, I would say the wrong thing. So seeing the writing on the wall, this is a figure of speech that means that imminent danger has become apparent, Imminent danger has become apparent. And so it's an encouragement to heed the warning. Heed the writing on the wall. Change course before it's too late. But this wasn't for King Belshazzar. His his end was already played out. So I think that this vision was actually for all of the other people present in the room. For all of Babylon as they heard the account of this story, that they would heed the writing on the wall, that they would not go the way of King Belshazzar, but they would remember back to their prior kings, to King Nebuchadnezzar, who actually heeded the warning, who bowed down at the end of his days and worshipped 
the one true God. He didn't cease being king, but he changed his ultimate allegiance. And I think it's a warning for all of us if we choose to hear it, to not harden our hearts toward God, to, to invest in things that last, not things that can be taken from us in a heartbeat. It's an encouragement for us to be the folks that when a tornado comes and levels our entire home, we can express gratitude that the things that matter most have not, in fact, been taken from us. In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moth and rust do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And later on, he says, What good will it be for you to gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? And so the question for us this morning is, what are we investing in? Where are we placing our hope? Is our ultimate hope in the things of this world? You know, Mark and I spent some time this week talking about our investments and whether we were making the best decisions, and um, that, that is okay. <laughs> that is okay. But where does your ultimate hope lie? And does the way that you live your life reflect that? Are we investing in treasures that will last? I believe that flourishing in exile means being able to say with conviction, regardless of what we have physically, that it is well with my soul. Flourishing happens when our hearts are fixed on acquiring heavenly treasure, spiritual capital, when it's these lasting things that have the place of ultimate value in our lives. Flourishing happens when we come to see all of life, not as a race to the top, but as an act of worship of our Heavenly Father from whom all blessings flow. That is the word of the Lord for us this morning. We are going to come to the table now. And I am just grateful week after week for the the physical reminder um, of so many things here. Today, the physical reminder of the source of our strength, the source of our, um, our daily bread. It's not in the job. Um, it's not in having a roof over our heads, although those things are so important. Our ultimate provision, our ultimate daily bread comes from the Lord. Everything that we have is gift from him. And so this morning, may we be reminded of that. And as we come to receive the bread and the cup, um, may we be nourished and strengthened to go out um, willing to put our weight down on the truth of the promises that God gives us in Jesus Christ.
Let me pray for us as we prepare to come to the table. Heavenly Father, it can be hard to sit and uh, evaluate our ultimate priorities because I think often um, our defenses rise. So Lord, if anyone here is feeling um, attacked this morning or judged, I pray that um, you would do a work of healing. And instead, Lord, I pray that the prevailing feeling that we would walk away this morning with is just um, the awareness of the fact that you are king, that you are the thing of ultimate value, that it is only in you um, that it can possibly be well with our soul. Grow in us a yearning for you, Lord. As tangible as we yearn for food when we are hungry, as tangible as we yearn for a cold drink on a hot day, grow in us a yearning for you. And then, Father, we pray that you would meet us, that you would fulfill that yearning with just a deep and lovely sense of your abiding presence with us. We ask, Lord, that as we put our trust in you, you would be faithful in providing for our daily needs. Thank you for the reminder of your provision here at the table. We ask that you would ready our hearts to come and to receive. In Jesus' name, amen.